Well, I want to say a big thank you to so many of you who've already given uh, toward the humanitarian outreach in the Ukraine. Together as a church family, we've given just a little under $5,600. And last week, our kids and families of uh, young children have uh, made cookies and all sorts of baked items. And uh, the church just rallied around that um, fundraising effort. And every dollar is going to the Ukraine through the emergency relief development overseas. Uh, arm of the uh, family of churches that we belong to. And so thank you again for being compassionate and being generous. And uh, it's true that together we can do a whole lot more than if we just run in all sorts of different directions. So um, thank you. As we uh, continue to pray for the Ukrainian people and give, you can still mark your envelope over and above your tithe, Ukraine, and every dollar will go through our emergency relief development overseas uh, outreach. So today we're continuing our series of scripture talks called Kings and Queens. We've been working through a series where we have been learning from what the um, ancient leaders of Israel got right and also what they didn't get so right. And uh, so uh, there are life lessons for us to consider. And we've been looking at King Saul, David, Solomon, Ahab and Jezebel, Josiah, Jehoram, Rehoboam. And uh, today we're going to take a look at Queen Esther. And if you happen to be new to the Bible, don't be overwhelmed by all of those names. Uh, even those of us who've been in the faith for a number of years and some decades are still trying to get some of the stories clear. Uh, again, there are six books um, in the Older Testament, 1st uh, and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, uh, where they outline the rule and the reign of um, some righteous kings and queens and some who um, kind of missed the mark uh, in many ways. Maybe that's a bit of a dramatic understatement. But we've been paying attention to their lives and um, kind of storing up some life lessons for ourselves as we move along. And this series will kind of culminate at the end of the Lent season uh, on Easter weekend with uh, Dr. Peter Newman on Good Friday, uh, 10.30 a.m., both online and in person, uh, where he'll be helping us as we consider Jesus, who is the King of Thorns. He took the curse upon himself for us. And then on Easter Sunday, uh, we'll be celebrating Jesus, King uh, of Life. And um, so we are, again, taking our cues, those of us who put our saving faith in Jesus, we're taking our cue on what it means to live well from Jesus. And so some of these kings and queens of Israel's history are pointing us in the right direction. Others are pointing us not so much in the right direction. But together, we're getting better by considering the, uh, the outcome of their lives. So our passage to ponder in keeping with Jesus, who is the ultimate king, um, is taken from John's gospel, chapter 18, goes like this. Jesus said, my kingdom, because he's a king over a kingdom, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. He says, no, my kingdom is from another place. And so it's a very different orientation, a very different set of values. And uh, so we, again, uh, emulate the Lord Jesus, but we do learn life lessons from others along the way. So today we're going to take a look at Queen Esther. And she was not a queen of Israel, even though she was Jewish. And she found herself in a faraway place in the land of Persia um, after the Babylonian captivity or exile. Um, the Babylon Babylonians had lost their um, kind of first place in the world, so to speak, as, as world dominators uh, to the Persians. 
And, um, you know, ancient Persia would be uh, comprised of modern day Iran, uh, India and parts of Africa. It was quite a large um, swath of land. And so uh, Queen Esther, um, she is, um, again, a Jewish woman and uh, she is... um, the queen beside King Xerxes. Uh, I hope these names are not overwhelming for you, again, if you're new to the Bible, but uh, hang in there with us as we move along because we're going to make this teaching as practical as possible. And so, but before we get started, I just want to give you a bit of a backstory of the book of Esther. And so the opening chapter of the book of Esther, uh, there's 10 uh, chapters in this book, and it reads like a a beautiful story. In fact, it's wonderful Sunday afternoon reading. Uh, It'll probably take you about an hour or so to read read from first chapter to the 10th chapter and just to catch up to the narrative it is really quite a beautiful story uh, but the opening chapter is of a king Xerxes who's um, um, his, is married to his wife the queen uh, Queen Vashti and uh, the king and queen are living a rather opulent life they sit on couches of gold and they drink from goblets of gold and King Xerxes has thrown a pretty extravagant party for 180 days. Couldn't imagine going to a party for 180 days, but many people did at the king's invitation. And it was quite the celebration, but it took a twist or a turning point happened in chapter one where King Xerxes was uh, rather high in spirits and uh, he invited his wife, Queen Vashti, to come out. The text says she was a rather beautiful woman, but the way the text describes his invitation, uh, he wanted her to come out and show off her beauty. Uh, And Queen Vashti felt objectified and exploited and she refused to come out. And so the king consulted his advisors, and here's what they said in Esther chapter 1, verses 19 to 20, just filling in the backstory for you as we move forward with the story. Here's what the advisor said to, to King Xerxes. So if it pleases the king, we suggest that you issue a written decree, a law of the Persians and Medes that cannot be revoked. It should order that Queen Vashti be forever banished from the presence of King Xerxes, and that the king should choose another queen more worthy than she. When this decree is published throughout the king's vast empire, husbands everywhere, whatever their rank, will receive proper respect from their wives. And so you can imagine in this uh, patriarchal culture uh, where, uh, again, this king is making demands of his wife, she refuses, and then he just exerts his kingly authority and banishes her. He listens to his advisors and does exactly that. That's an important part of the story because Queen Esther comes along a little bit later, and we'll look at that in a few moments. But continuing on with the backstory, because I'm trying to fill in all the pieces and all the characters, there's a man named Mordecai. He's Jewish. And he has a cousin named Esther. She's Jewish as well. And so this character Mordecai emerges in chapter two as an upright man who loves his family. And uh, he's committed to honorable, God-fearing conduct with his life. And the text says in chapter two, verse seven of the book of Esther, this man which is Mordecai, had a very beautiful and lovely young cousin, Hadassah, who was also called Esther. When her father and mother died, so she, uh, she became an orphan, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. And so Mordecai, again, is described as an upright man, does the right thing, cares about family, and he takes a very keen interest in his cousin, his younger cousin, Esther, and raises her as his own daughter. And then we keep going into the story and there's another character that emerges by the name of Haman. And he is described as an Agagite. Agagite. So he's actually from the Amalekites, which were the enemies of Israel. He actually hates Mordecai and the Jewish people. 
So we have a contrasting character emerge. We have Mordecai upright and godly, and then we have Haman who is, uh, has a, a hate on for the Jewish people and is bent on self-centered living. He's arrogant, he's proud, it's all about him, and he has disdain for Mordecai and the Jewish people. And the text says in chapter three, the next chapter, verses five and six, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down because he was a upright, God-fearing Jewish man and he would not bow to anything that was um, even associated with some sort of um, adoration that would pollute his conviction and his devotion to the one true God. When he would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. Again, this is Haman filled with rage about Mordecai's behavior. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality, so he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. And so this is like a, um, an early Holocaust that is uh, beginning to take form in, in Haman's heart. And so we have these two characters emerge, Mordecai, Jewish, upright and godly. We have Haman emerge, who is not upright, evil, self-centered, and he hates the Jewish people, specifically Mordecai. And then we have this story. So the book of Esther is a story of twists and turns and irony and great reversals. In fact, if you can think about these two pictures of a sharpened pole, which was an execution stake back in, in the ancient world, and then um, horseback riders, because if you can keep those two images in mind as we read through the text, it'll make more sense to you. But great reversals take place in this story, and the story is going somewhere extremely deliberate. The author is moved upon by the Holy Spirit to help us understand some very important things about the way God works in the world. And a very important clue for us, the name of God is not even mentioned in all 10 chapters of the book of Esther. And yet at the same time, he is like all over the pages of the story. And so um, in, an, in an incredible moment, uh, Haman is in the outer courts of the king's palace and he is wanting to speak with the king. And the king is suffering from a bout of insomnia and he wakes in the middle of the night. And all of these occurrences, though God's name is not mentioned, he is involved in the whole process. And so um, let me read this to you. It's from um, Esther chapter six, 10 verses. Here we go. That night, the king had trouble sleeping. It's just a point of information, but there's so much more going on. So he ordered an attendant to bring the book of the history of his reign so it could be read to him. I guess that would probably help him go to sleep. I don't know. In those records, he discovered an account of how Mordecai, because Mordecai had done some upright things. He had actually heard about an assassination attempt and he actually reported it and it saved the king's life. He discovered an account of how Mordecai had exposed the plot of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the eunuchs who guarded the door of the king's private quarters. They had plotted to assassinate King Xerxes. What reward or recognition did we ever give Mordecai for this? The king asked. Kind of interesting timing. His attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. Who is that in the outer court? The king inquired. We'll pause there for just a second. Haman was on his way to see the king because at the end of chapter five, his spouse and his friends were saying, you should go and assert yourself and kind of demand the execution of, 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 of uh, Mordecai and his people and put yourself forward and, and you're a, play, a person of great influence, leverage your influence and the king will reward you and celebrate you. And so here's what happens. Nothing has been done for him. Who is that in the outer court? The king inquired. As it happened, Haman had just arrived in the outer court of the palace to ask the king to impale Mordecai on the pole he had prepared. So the attendants replied to the king, Haman is out, of the, out in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. 
So Haman came in and the king said, what should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? Haman thought to himself, whom would the king wish to honor more than me? This is a man who's so self-absorbed, self-centered, preoccupied only with himself. So he replied, if the king wishes to honor someone, he should bring out one of the king's own royal robes, as well as a horse that the king himself has ridden, one with a royal emblem on its head. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble officials, and let him see that the man whom the king wishes to honor is dressed in the king's robes, led through the city square on the king's horse. Have the officials shout as they go, this is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. Excellent, the king said to Haman. Quick, take the robes and my horse and do just as you have said for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the gate of the palace. Leave out nothing you have suggested. What a twist of events. Uh, what um, a reversal of, of uh, circumstances emerge as Haman goes in look, seeking out his own honor and he wants to impale his enemy Mordecai. And he actually ends up having to celebrate and honor Mordecai. And uh, stay tuned for the sharpened pole that was in Haman's mind for his enemy. Um, it may have his own name on it as we move through the story. All right, I've got three thoughts for you. I know time goes so quickly. Let me share them with you. Here's the first one. The story of Esther teaches us that God is always working, though not always obvious to us. Remember, his name is not, God's name is not on any of the pages of the story of Esther. Ten chapters and not a mention of God. It's very clear that the author is saying something by leaving God's name out. Not that God is not present or active, but that sometimes we don't always, with great clarity, see what he's doing. God doesn't always announce himself, but he's working. So here's three quick thoughts. God is present protecting his people. That's what the story tells us. This turn of events happened. It was all part of the way God was working. The king just suffered from a, a bout of insomnia, reads from the king's book, uh, the king's books of events, and he recalls the um, beautiful act of Mordecai that saved his life. And then that creates a, um, a domino effect of a host of different things. God is present protecting his people. God is providential and pays attention. The word providence means pro from before and videntia in Latin where we get the word video. God sees before. And uh, so he is never caught off guard. He is never surprised by the events of human beings. And so we can take great confidence that God is not discovering human history with us as we move along, though he is with us. God has a vantage point that we don't have. He sees things before. God is providential and he pays attention. And he pays attention because he cares about us. And then finally, God is powerful and he intervenes. Um, I do want to just remind you again of the ways of God. In the New Testament, Paul writes and he says, we should be very careful uh, that we don't try to um, serve up retribution to others. Or as Paul writes, return evil for evil. Even if we feel we have been wronged in some way, he says, you know what? Offer a cup of cold water, bless your enemy, look after those people who mistreat you. He says, serve up blessing where there might be an instinct to serve up a curse. And uh, in this story, a real graphic story, where a man who is bent on evil, he designs a sharpened pole for his perceived enemy. 
we should be very careful when we act out in ways that try to create our own sense of um, retribution because it doesn't take much for humans to overreach and to actually do things outside the scope of God's approval. In this story, he's bent on evil, Haman is, and he's going to um, attempt to do something wicked uh, to a man who hasn't done anything wrong. There's just been a personal offense that took place. So if you ever feel that somebody is out to get you, or this is how Haman was perceived around Mordecai, you can trust God. He is always working. Um, remember the story of Joseph in the Older Testament. Um, he was falsely accused of doing something wrong. And uh, he ended up going to prison for a couple of years. Um, and the text is, it, it just kind of skims over his time there. Uh, but he ends up being promoted. And throughout the story of, of Joseph in, in Genesis, between Genesis 37 and 50, you see this little phrase, God was with him. God was with him. God was with him. All the way through the story of Joseph. And so uh, even though he was falsely accused and suffering, God was with him. And then also we think of our Lord Jesus, who's falsely accused, suffering for crimes he never committed, but God was with him. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself through an act of injustice on the cross where he gave his life for the sins of the whole world, including our own. And so um, sharpened poles uh, should be avoided. We don't build them for others. And uh, when we do so and we act outside of the God-approved practice of our own lives, we, we, we end up potentially putting ourselves in a vulnerable, vulnerable spot, as Haman did, and he kind of etched his own name in the sharpened pool. But um, the story of Esther teaches us that God is always working, though not always obvious to us. All right, secondly, the story of Esther teaches us that God redeems the events of our lives for his purposes. Um, and a really important principle is this. In the economy of God, the word approved and redeemed are not the same thing. They're not synonymous terms. Um, God doesn't always approve of the activities of men and women, but he does redeem them. And so um, we want to talk just briefly for a few moments about this very important principle because I think it is so relevant for so much of our lives. Mordecai in this story does a series of next right things. He looks after his younger cousin, Esther. He steps in as a parent for her. He also listens to a, an act of treason and he reports it to save the king's life. Um, and God uses his right behavior for his purposes. Um, so let me, let me again read this, Esther chapter 2, 21 and 23. One day as Mordecai was on duty at the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthana and Teresh, who were guards at the door of the king's private quarters, became angry at King Xerxes and plotted to assassinate him. But Mordecai heard about the plot and gave the information to Queen Esther. She then told the king about it and gave Mordecai credit for the report. When an investigation was made and Mordecai's story was found to be true, the two men were impaled on a sharpened pole. This was all recorded in the book of the history of the king of King Xerxes' reign. And so Mordecai does a series of next right things. And God uses his right behavior, God-approved behavior for his redemptive purposes, which was to protect and save the people, including his connection with Queen Esther, who was taken into his family, raised as his own daughter, and that's who he communicated with to save the king's life, another beautiful good act, but it was remembered, it was recorded because Queen Esther gave him credit. All of these things are interconnected. And so um, when we do the next right thing, God approved, of course, um, God redeems those acts for his purposes. Secondly, Xerxes acts poorly, 
by exploiting and deposing his wife, Queen Vashti. And these actions are redeemed by God for his purposes as well. And so um, Xerxes is responsible for his um, uh, exploitive and um, objectifying behavior of his wife. Um, it's not God approved. Uh, it was not in keeping with God's um, uh, specific, beautiful plan for Queen Vashti and, and King Xerxes, but he redeems it. And so even sometimes when acts are outside of God's approval, they still are potentially redeemable as God sees fit as he moves uh, human history forward. There was a vacancy in uh, the king's life by his wrong act and by the poor counsel of his advisors, but it opened up that vacancy, which, was, which would one day be filled by Queen Esther, which was part of God's protective, redemptive plan to save the people, the Jewish people that he's in covenant relationship with. God uses the poor choices of Xerxes for his redemptive purposes. Uh, not God sanctioned, but God redeemed. So even when you and I color outside the lines, we step out, do the wrong thing, um, God can still redeem those acts or things that have been done to us, though they may not be God-sanctioned and God-approved, God can still redeem it. So even Esther, she experiences grief and loss. Her parents die when she was a young woman, but she was still cared for by God, and this was used for his redemptive purposes. Terrible things can happen to us. Terrible things uh, that are not less terrible because God redeems them but they're still painful and hard to process. Um, but God used even the losses in um, Queen Esther's life uh, when she was a young woman for uh, Mordecai to step in and to uh, be a part of this divine drama, we could call it, even though the, uh, the starring lead role is not mentioned by name in the story, which is God, Yahweh himself. Um, this strong relationship that Esther has with Mordecai is part of the way God protects his people. So I think that is absolutely so cool as we consider this. The story of Esther teaches us that God redeems the events of our lives for his purposes. And so we can trust him uh, that he, he is the great redeemer of all things. Finally, here's the last thought. Number three, the story of Esther teaches us the importance of a courageous faith and a surrendered life. Um, this is the kind of apex of the moment when Esther demonstrates such tremendous leadership capacity and such noble character. Uh, in chapter four, uh, beginning at verse 10, listen to this. Then Esther told Hathak to go back and relay this message to Mordecai. All the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter. You couldn't just walk into the king's presence and make a request. That was not permitted. You would risk your life by doing so. Uh, and, and the king has not called for me, Esther says, to come to him for 30 days. So Hathak gave Esther's message to Mordecai. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. That's wise counsel from Mordecai. Who knows, he continues, if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. Who knows if perhaps God hasn't elevated you, given you a seat at the table, a voice of influence so that you could protect and speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, and what a beautiful response this is. She says, go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. There's an implication here that they were going to call in the name of the one true God through prayer. 
fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. So Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So Esther is a wonderful example for us of somebody who has a, um, uh, a high view of God. And so she makes an appeal to a big God. She understands that this is a big problem, but God is far bigger than the problem that she's facing. And so she invites others to be praying. Esther understood that Yahweh was king over all kings, including Xerxes, and that God could handle this situation, this set of terrible circumstances that threaten the welfare of the Jewish people. So Esther appeals to a big God. Secondly, Esther makes a community ask. She just doesn't do it alone in isolation, but she actually appeals to the greater community. Uh, what an important principle that is too. Jesus taught about something called agreement prayer. There is great power when we agree together and we pray. Prayer is a bit of a mystery. We don't really understand why um, God invites us to do so, but we get to shape history with him when we pray. And we, most importantly, get shaped by God personally when we pray. And so there's a bunch of us that meet probably 15 or so on a Tuesday morning every week at 8 a.m. online on our Zoom platform. You can head to our website, kingstreet.org. You could click on that link. It'll take you right to the prayer call. We're there from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. Some people come for 20 minutes, a half hour. Some stay for the whole time. We usually have a, a conversation around uh, a part of scripture and then we'll pray together. We'll share needs and requests and we'll agree together. And it's really cool to see the way that God is responding to our prayers. So Esther makes a community ask and we should do likewise. And then finally, Esther takes a big risk. She's willing to put her life on the line for a cause that's way bigger than her own life. Uh, this is what I absolutely love about Esther, her devotion to the one true God and her willingness to put herself out there for a cause that's way bigger than herself. I listened to a podcast recently by a man named Arthur Brooks. He's a prof out of Harvard. He's a Christian man. He's devoted to the Lord Jesus. And he talked about happiness. And he said there is a correlation um, around happiness that is connected to um, people who hold values and then live in concert with those values. There isn't a, a kind of discontinuity between what they, they profess to value and how they live their lives. There's an integration, we call it integrity. Uh, that's a big part of happiness. Esther uh, was an integrated person. She valued um, something really important and she was willing to act in concert with her values. And so uh, this is a beautiful story. I hope you'll take the time to read chapters one through 10 and look for God, though his name is not on the page, but he is all over the story. And he's all over the story of your life and my life too. And sometimes it's more clearer than at other times, uh, but he is present and he is powerful and he is providential. He sees before and he is most importantly with us. So I wanna pray for you and I invite the host pastors to come back. Lord, thank you for the story of Queen Esther, how she was courageous and surrendered. Pray, Lord, that you would help us also to be courageous and surrendered to you. Thank you, God, that we can, um, again, recognize that you are all over the pages of the story of our lives. And uh, help us, God, to go on a, a, on a search to find you more consistently. Even in the areas, God, that are hard to read about our story, you're present there too. And so uh, we pray for the peace and grace and the wisdom of Christ to come to us. And thank you for the, uh, the text of scripture that guides us to a greater understanding of what you're like and how you're inviting us to live our lives in the world. And so bless each and every one of my friends today, Lord, as we take these life lessons with us into the story of our own lives that you are writing with us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen.